Hey, everybody, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people that I think you should know about. And our next guest, I really think you should know about. I was going to wait until February to introduce him to the world, not that he needs me to do that. He is somebody who I actually recently interviewed for the upcoming 2021 Truth About Weight Loss Summit, which will be in its third year, airing, I believe, February 13th. And I was so impressed. I'm like, it's not fair to keep you a secret because not only is he a plant-based medical doctor, which of course makes him already awesome, but he is in a specialty that uh, that's actually kind of fairly new and he's going to talk about it. He is an obesity medicine specialist, which is a specialty of medicine I believe didn't used to exist years ago. So please welcome to the show, my new friend, Dr. Jamie Kane. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Chef AJ. So this is interesting, Dr. Kane. It's Thanksgiving. This is a day where a lot of people, regardless of their weight, gorge themselves. And I remember in my 20s, I was a respiratory therapist and I always volunteered to work the holidays because I wasn't married and it wasn't that important to me. And plus we got, you know, double time. And I can't tell you how many heart attacks came into the emergency room on, on Thanksgiving day. So something's going on with the food. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think, um, Probably in that setting, we're talking about what's happening in the acute setting of when you when you gorge yourself. Um, but what we eat can affect how our blood vessels behave, right? So when we eat certain foods, our blood vessels will dilate. And when we eat other foods, our blood vessels will constrict. Um, you throw that in with, with you know, acute blood pressure rises and, and other stressors, and you're probably more likely to see heart attacks. Um, and so I, I think... Uh, now and then all the way, I mean, this is obviously a, a strange year, so who knows what'll happen, but now through probably early January, you know, you have that, that super high risk. You know, I've, I've interviewed probably close to hundred doctors now for these, with these weight loss summits. And one of those things we bring up quite a bit is this notion health at every size. And while we never want to shame or blame people, I think what is on everybody's mind, especially with COVID, when we're hearing reports of how people that do suffer, and, and again, you you taught me, you don't call people obese, you, they suffer from obesity, people that suffer from obesity or being overweight because they're not, their disease seem to have more, more complications. So can, does weight matter? I mean, does it matter? So the answer is yes, it does, but that doesn't mean that everyone has exactly the same negative response from carrying too much weight. Um, you have to look at several other factors. So I would say if you look at their kind of lifestyle as a whole and how healthy that lifestyle is, um, you can look at the distribution of fat. So as opposed to like calling obesity based on body mass index, right? Which is just height and weight ratios. We can look at it based on fat distribution. So the more central the more central distribution of fat would, would make a more concern. Um, and then there's obviously genetic component. So if you have a family history of coronary disease, cancer, diabetes, and so forth, you're, you're probably better off not, not letting your, your health get out of control or your, at least your, your risk factors get out of control. I think you got to put that all into context. So when we, when we look at, at curves, right, where you look at, at, um, uh, like mortality curves, you see a J shape, right? So the people who are super, super underweight tend to have higher mortality rates. And think of these people as people with chronic illness and starvation, right? And then you have, and then you have, you know, kind of low normal weight would be the, the optimal weight. And as you go up even to overweight, 
And really it's at that overweight, that BMI of roughly 25, that we start seeing mortality go up. That doesn't mean every single person with a BMI of 25 has a higher risk of every single person with a BMI of 22 or 23. Also, we know that as age changes, that curve changes a little bit too. So people, you know, an 80 year old is, is gonna be a little more protected at a slightly higher weight. That said, um, uh, clearly if we're packing on excess fat, uh, which is what we're assuming is going on here when we're talking about obesity and particularly potentially uh, central adiposity, we're not gonna be dealing with, with maximizing your health. I mean, that, that's a pretty easy statement to make. Right, so I don't remember obesity medicine being a specialty. When did this come to be? Um, well, let's see, I finished my residency in 2006 and it was still relatively new then it wasn't like it was brand new, but just the number of people involved in it was newer. And what happened is people have been working with obesity for ages. Um, and it just was that different, different people had control over it. So my impression when I got into it was that the, these new obesity societies had formed and, and um, there was a battle really between endocrinology and gastroenterology, like who owns obesity? Um, and I think thankfully in the end, the, the team that won out was the, the third party, which was, which was the, the people taking on obesity as its own entity. Uh, yes, it fits into, into endocrine and neuroendocrine uh, as a neuroendocrine dysfunction, but it is really its own um, constellation of every organ system going off, right? So the, the complications range from increased rates of cardiac complications to um, endocrine issues, uh, to orthopedic issues, to neuropsychiatric issues. I just, just, everything is covered in there. So having its own specialty, I think is, is, uh, is the most useful and allows people more time and sensitivity to the specific problems of people with obesity. You talk, so, so do you have to be like an internal medicine doctor first? Well, so now the way it's, it's playing out is that um, now I think it started in 2012 was the first exam. The American Board of Obesity Medicine um, was uh, had its first exam, and they're now it's called they're called diplomats, and so um, it is not recognized the same way that say endocrinology would be as a as a subspecialty um, by some of the powers that be. It's recognized by other other ones, um, and so there are a couple different ways people can either take a fellowship or they can take a a similar fellowship with some specialty in obesity, or they can. Um, sit for the exam after, after, you know, as a licensed physician with, um, with enough kind of medical education on top of, of what they're doing. Most people that are drawn to it are going to be either in internal medicine or in, in, you know, general practice family medicine. Um, but there also are endo uh, endocrinologists um, would be that third major bucket. Um, but there are some gastroenterologists who are more interested in the esoteric side and then are some people from surgery, cardiology, OBGYN. There's a whole other collection of, of pediatric specialists. So there, are, I think there are at least three or four now fellowships that dedicate themselves to pediatric obesity and that number's growing. Because the first time I heard of this specialty was actually when I was interviewing two GI doctors for the GI health summit that just happened. And they, they like you say, they do these procedures that are different than gastric bypass. They're not permanent procedures. And that's when I first heard of this specialty and I was just, I, I didn't even know it existed. Right, right. Well, you mentioned it requires a certain sensitivity because when you think about it, just calling yourself an obesity specialist, somebody that would come to you would 
therefore probably suffer from obesity. So isn't that sort of a little bit stigmatizing in itself? You mean uh, using the word obesity or well, kind of like, cause you know, like, yeah, oh, I have, you know, I have an appointment with my obesity specialist, you know, it's different. Like, oh, I have an appointment with my cardiologist. I, I'm just wondering because you're the one that taught me about, you have to have, you know, about yeah, the sensitivity. I mean, it, it, well, the, the, the thing is, I'm not saying that, that obesity itself should be a stigmatizing word. It's, it's the disease state, right? It's like saying, I'm going to my diabetes doctor and saying, I don't go to McCall, I call my diabetes. I'm going to go to my sugar doctor. I mean, right. It's like, I mean, at that point, you it's all semantics, but, but by when I made that correction before, it was really about kind of making it patient centric. At some point, you got to name the disease, whatever you want to call it, right? If you're going to call it a disease, you can call it obesity, you can call it, you know, um, at adiposis maximus, you can call it whatever you want, but it, at some point- I think it, that sounds better. Yeah. I think we yeah, should yeah. call it adiposis maximus. That sounds so yeah. much better, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. It, you it, know- so it's kind of hard to deal with though. You talked about this central adiposity. And when I think about, there's a, you know, I live in a senior community and I see these men and when you see them from the back, they look just like regular, you know, legs and just, and then when you see them from the side, they have like a belly that looks like they're nine months pregnant. That's what you're talking about is the dangerous kind of, of body fat, correct? Right. We're talking about, you know, under the muscle layer, the protruding hard belly. That would be the worst scenario. Um, but there's data even to show that, that maybe even some degree of love handles aren't so good. So anything around the midsection has some inflammatory capability, even fat around the arms a little more so than let's say anything below the waist. We don't really care about, I mean, well, I care about it if my patient's upset about it, but I, I, I don't care about it from a safety standpoint. What is it about these, the disease state of obesity that makes it such an inflammatory condition? Well, I, Put it this way, the, the, the adipose tissue itself creates more than a dozen, what we call inflammatory cytokines. So something is going on in that, in the process of these, this, um, you know, of the, the gaining of the excess fat, but the distribution of the excess fat now is coming from a different uh, source, right? So it's really coming from insulin resistance and oxidative stress probably. And that process then is damaging how the cell itself functions. And so those, that adipose tissue is then gonna, is it then has all these kind of inflammatory immune, basically immune system goes crazy um, and creates these inflammatory. So it's like, it's like being sick with an infection except it's actually coming from your fat cells without you know, a microbial disease. Well, people love the renaming of the disease to adipose maximus, just so you know. Right. They say it's, it's very Harry Potter. And I think that I think that, that's amazing. <laughs> well, we just is... wave a wand at it. That's what so many people want. <laughs> <laughs> if there only was a magic wand. Right, so yeah. th this is a really interesting question from Gina, who's watching live. Is it possible for you to have fat around your middle and then get liposuction? Does that lower your risk or do you actually need to lose it? There have been studies that showed that it did not help it's possible that some of the risk factors actually went up, but it did not help. That's a question I asked when, you know, early on in my medical training, it's like, well, if this is really the central, the central issue, then why can't we just suck, suck out the bad stuff, you know, remove the, that inner fat. Although the liposuction is going to be more superficial than that, the inner stuff. So when, wow. when you have liposuction, they're going at the outer layer. They're not really going to, they're not going to tackle under the muscle per se. Wow. So, 
what made you interested in, in this specialty? Because you don't, you don't look like you suffer from the disease of obesity. Did you have family members? Because it's, it's, it just seems like, the, you know, a lot of times people go into professions that, that, that something maybe that happened to them, but it, I don't think you were. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have family members with, that, with obesity, but I'm not sure that that, I don't know many people with family mem- with in this day and age who don't have family members that have, have obesity. It just is pretty, uh, it's pretty crazy given, you know, more than two thirds of the country has, uh, has, has overweight or obesity now. Um, but I would say a couple things uh, that, that happened. So when I was trained, training at, at, in the primary care internal medicine program at Yale, and that was one of the, the large, I think while I was there, it became the largest uh, primary care internal medicine program in the country. As, as, it, as those programs were losing favor because people wanted to go into specialties and make more money and not have to deal with all the, the rigors of primary care, um, that became less popular. But either way, we're the largest one and still half of the people in our program would go on to subspecialties. And, and as I was looking with kind of all the external pressures about that, I was thinking everything that I would choose uh, was something that was either preventable or reversible. And how can I go in you know, be a, a nephrologist, a kidney specialist, when most of the kidney disease comes from, you know, diabetes and, and hypertension, when we can make, we can prevent and reverse diabetes and hypertension most of the time. So how can I do that? And endocrinology, you know, my interest, it would have been more in diabetes and thyroid. And so almost all the diabetes, same, right? We're, we're same stuff. Uh, heart disease, most of the time, the same stuff. So if my interest was in big, picture stuff, I was, I was trying to think of a way to, um, to get on the, the front end of the disease spectrum. And between that and the fact that the field is burgeoning, and then I had a, I had a, you know, a facility with, with kind of talking patients in and out of behaviors, um, which is just a, I mean, that's like a, I guess, a skill set that I kind of was born with. And, and so it, it made it natural for me to have discussions with people about, about, you know, preventing and reversing their, their chronic disease, as opposed to just, okay, well, you have diabetes and hypertension, so the numbers are still high. So let me give you another med and another med and do this other test and yada, yada, yada. So um, that, that is kind of where, where it came from. I think in retrospect, you know, my, my mother and some other close people to our family had, had been involved in losing weight earlier on. I might've I might've probably read some of the materials when I was a kid and it sunk in, but it was many years later before I figured that out. Is it, is it frustrating sometimes because like, like, let's say for example, you're a cardiologist and you can put a stent in and, and kind of fix somebody right away. Or if you're an orthopedic surgeon, you can, you know, you can operate on their bone. It's treating people with obesity. It's not a quick fix. So, um, well, so absolutely it's not a quick fix. I, I, hesitate to say that the stent or a lot of the orthopedic procedures are quick fixes either, right? I mean, in, in, or at its best, big orthopedic procedures require pre and particularly post-op care that goes, might not happen in the, in the office of the orthopedist, but there's physical therapy. There's lots of stuff. As someone who, who played sports his whole life and had a lot of injuries and I've had multiple orthopedic surgeries, when you destroy a shoulder playing tennis and other sports, it never really comes back all the way. These are, these are chronic diseases, even when you have surgery. Um, you know, you put a stent in, putting a stent in someone who's not actively having a heart attack is not shown uh, mortality benefit, right? So you still have to deal with all the other stuff long-term. 
So, I mean, I look at it as if, you know, if they're not thinking about these as long-term issues, then that's, that's, you know, shame on them. But I, so, th but that's, I guess that's the way I think about it. So it, it doesn't frustrate me. It's just, uh, it's, it, there's a lot of time convincing patients that this is a long, a long term thing and not just, you know, what does your weight look like this week or three months from now? It's just, I've tried working with people on weight loss and I've pretty much given up because of the recidivism rate is just so high. Yeah. So all comers who try to lose weight, the data suggests that within three years, somewhere between 80 and 99% of people will regain their weight depending on the study. So the, and, and, and it's not that um, I'm blaming anyone. There are there are so many compensatory mechanisms in place to make you regain weight. Uh, and then you combine that with our, our crazy culture and you put that all together and it, it, it really does make sense why it's so difficult to, to keep the weight off. And so, you know, part of this is having good relationships with people so they feel comfortable when they catch themselves, you know, coming back in. Is there a way that instead of treating obesity, we can just somehow prevent it? We, you and me? Probably well, yeah, not. just you and me, nobody else, me and Dr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kate, we're going to get I a van. A simple damn solution, right? If the whole world <laughs> just kind of lived on plants and didn't think of food, you know, in, in the way that people think about drugs and stayed active and happy and healthy, then yeah, I mean, that would be a great prevention. And, 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 then, and then have their kids live healthy lives, right? I mean, that, that's really, it, it, nowadays it'll be, it's really keeping kids, teenagers, people in their 20s from, from losing control because you chase it the rest of your life. I mean, I, obesity really is a lifestyle disease, isn't it? I mean, I know there's genetic components, but at the end of the day, for most people, wouldn't you say it's truly lifestyle? I, I would say that the lifestyle plays a role for everyone. Um, it might not be, uh, let's, let's take out the, right, the small number of people with purely genetic, right, with, with like a enzyme deficiencies. And, um, but, but uh in the end, there is a lifestyle component to, to everything. Um, once you have obesity, though, it's a different story. So once you once you you have you know what we call morbid obesity, where 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 the you know your defense system starts losing control, uh, things don't work the same. So your ability to know when you're done eating uh, is severely hindered, and there's lots of inflammation and your response to normal hormones that, that govern appetite and satiety and insulin and glucagon, all these things, they stop, they stop, uh, your body stops responding appropriately to them. And so, you know, some of that's from inflammation, some of it seems to be really long-term. So I, you know, I don't, even with a great lifestyle, you, you have to take what the long-term results are going to be with, you know, with, uh, an open mind. This is a very interesting question from Violet, who's watching live. She said, can you please ask the doctor if when people lose weight, are there toxins that are stored in fat cells that are released into our bodies that can make us feel sick? So, uh, you know, it's, it's theoretically, if there's some toxins that are, are attached to, I mean, that are what we call uh, lipophilic, that, that, would live in fat cells. It's possible. Um, put it this way. I have yet to see it in 15 years and thousands of patients. So, um, you know, the, the lifestyle associated with obesity and the accumulation of excess adipose tissue, particularly in the wrong place is associated with its own set of 
as I was saying, there's over a dozen toxic inflammatory chemicals just from that alone. Um, that uh, not to mention what the food itself does to people or inactivity does to people or the other lifestyle issues associated with it, that um, it's not something that generally speaking, we, we concern ourselves with. Yeah, I've often heard Dr. Furman talk about the difference between, I think, visceral fat and what was there? He talks about two kinds. What's the second kind? Visceral and subcutaneous fat. Subcutaneous, right, yeah. And that one is more dangerous because aren't there also people that, that are not overweight but have like this kind of bad fat around their internal organs that's, that's, that's deleterious as well? Sure. Probably some of the people in the retirement community, right? Because their muscle mass is down. They, they put on, you know, 18 pounds of belly fat. doesn't put them into any obesity category. Their BMI might be 26, which at age 78 is considered protective against mortality, right? But um, that will, that's what we call, but, but now their blood sugars are starting to go up. Their cholesterol values are going off. Their blood pressure is going up and they're on four pills. And and that's what we call normal weight obesity. So they, they, their weight is not in the obese category, but their body's acting like it. How do how does how does a person know if they they have this? Um, well, one, your belly sticks out, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's that's that's, that's a look in the mirror. Um, and then and then generally speaking, you would see you know the, in addition to like your a large waist circumference or waist to hip ratio, that's now you know much bigger in the in the belly than in the waist. I mean, then in the hips. Uh, generally speaking, you would see things like your blood pressure going up. Uh, you would see your HDL, good cholesterol go down. You would see, um, triglycerides maybe going up and you would see blood sugars and A1C, hemoglobin A1Cs go up. And th- that would be kind of a starting point. And those are things that are generally taken in annual physicals. Um, and, and that would be a sign. And if you looked and compared it to like eight, 10 years ago, you would see all those numbers going off. Jennifer says, as other people, that this is fascinating, fascinating interview, love prevention. I have many friends who resent their doctors mentioning obesity with weight-bearing joint degradation. I feel sorry for the physicians in this difficult positions. What are good ways to discuss this without offending? I mean, I, I don't think it's for like the lay person to like discuss, <laughs> probably. Right. Um, right. But, but even even doctors. So, so it's difficult. And I, I, will, I will tell you that I am in a situation where I often don't have to have that discussion. So, and I'll, I'll get to it in a second, but um, that, that because I, I exist in a large university hospital setting, um, we get referrals and we ask that two things be true with our referrals. One, that patients have obesity because we're, you know, we're, we're so popular compared to the amount of time we have to see people that um, we would never get to all the people who are really sick if we saw everyone who just wanted to lose 10 pounds. Um, and then issue number two is we ask that there be some degree of motivation. And that means that whoever's the referring physician has asked them, are you interested in actually making some change? And they don't send them out of frustration because they can't help them. Um, and as long as they know that, that this is an issue and they wanna do something about it, then that's all we ask. And then we'll, we'll, we'll take over from there. Um, so I don't have that primary discussion very often um, my bias is always towards educating people. Um, and, and I think part of the, part of the way to do this is to develop relationships with people. Um, not, that's not always going to be the case. Let's say you're an orthopedist and you're meeting someone for the first time and orthopedists have 40, 50 people a day that they see when they're not operating. Um, you don't develop that rapport. Um, and I think what you want to do is make sure that my bias is always to educate people. So they realize even though 
they are the ones who are going to be able to make this change and they recommend that they they look into this or do something about it um that it is it is a part of it but it's not the only problem that they have um and and I think a lot of times patients either hear or, or doctors are, are forced into such a rush that, that the communication ends up being, well, you're fat, that's why your knee hurts, right? No doubt if they lost 80 pounds, there'd be less pressure on their knee, um, but it's more complicated than that. And so, you know, you have to be comfortable in your skin having these conversations. Do I mean, they, that's, do, that's the other thing. So there's gonna do, be pushback, but... but well, do they teach any of these like medical sensitivity courses in medical school? <laughs> oh, there's all sorts of stuff now. Yeah, it's much different than it was when I was training. And when I was training, it was much different than the generation before. So that doesn't mean that I, I'm not a big fan of those courses. I, I, I'm happy that they're teaching them. But to me, that's for the lowest common denominator. You know, it's um, interesting. The, the, people, the people who don't have, you know, a high, high EQ that, that, that are not comfortable talking with people about uncomfortable stuff. Um, at least they have a script that they can go by. Uh, but I think you have to read the room when you're a physician, right? You know, you're, you have to be a people person. You know, it's interesting because I'm 60 and the older I get, the younger my doctors get. And I, there are doctors now that themselves suffer from obesity. Yeah, sure. They always were. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an interesting question from Donna, who's watching live. Do people who have lost a great deal of weight and then regained it have more difficulty losing weight the next time? If so, what is the scientific reason behind this? Um, so the answer is, I don't know. The answer is maybe. I have seen both ends of it, where people lost a lot of weight, regained, lost a lot of weight a second time. I have also seen people well, that I've worked with that have lost a lot of weight, gained it back, and we're trying to do some of the same stuff that worked before. It doesn't work with as much drama as it did before. Um, when you gain weight and lose a lot of weight, as I mentioned before, there are compensatory mechanisms that, that make it difficult. So there are multiple hormones that, will, that govern appetite, satiety, fat storage, um, and then, and then also other responses to things like insulin and so forth. So as you lose weight, your response to insulin tends to get better. But, but if you're chronically on a diet, then, then things like ghrelin, which, which dictates uh, how hungry you are and possibly how much fat you're storing, that's going to be sky high for the most part. Um, your leptin levels go way down. So your, your body's metabolism slows down, your appetite goes up. And in the setting of losing a lot of weight, you know, we don't know whether gaining the weight back after losing a tremendous amount of weight, you ever get it all the way back up. So you might be dealing with, you know, relative uh, insensitivity to those hormones, if that makes sense, each time you do it. But that, that's, that's my, my guess more so than, than a fact. Right. So you're plant-based. So thank you so much. That means you're already awesome. Could a plant-based approach help some of your patients who are struggling? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to caution people that like, if, if you if you go to seminars about plant-based eating, you will hear that it, it solves everything. Um, not really true. It doesn't solve everything, but it creates, a, it creates as much physiologic normalcy as possible. Um, and so what, what we recommend, um, you know, I have a team of I think 10 clinicians now, and, and we, um, you know, we, we move people towards plant-based. Some people go all the way to whole food plant-based. Some people are in transition. Some people 
don't even know it, but they're, they're much more plant-based than they used to be. They don't think about it that way. Um, but if you look at a couple of, of concepts that I think work, one, you can eat more food with fewer calories. You can, one. Number two, you can increase um, sensitivity uh, to insulin more by avoiding saturated fat. And then some other stuff too. Like we don't recommend people eat sugar either, right? So um, getting rid of those two things alone, eating more whole foods tends to sensitize people to insulin, which means they're less likely to store fat. Um, and then there, there are a whole bunch of other processes that are, that are going on. Your gut microbes are happier. You, you know, you produce more serotonin, your brain tends to be happier. Um, and, and that's another way the appetite's regulated. So it, it makes sense on a, on a whole host of fronts, but more so than rapid weight loss, it also tends to help with the overall health and well-being of our patients, right? So people are get off blood pressure medications faster. Their blood sugars normalized faster. Their cholesterol drops dramatically um, when, when, when they go all the way. So yeah, we do recommend all the time. That said, I have plenty of people with intractable arthritis in their knees, they're and multiple medical problems and they're waiting on knee replacement surgery, but, but they're not, it's not, they're not at a safe weight. They might lose 40 or 50 pounds on a whole food plant-based diet, but that alone, you know, the, those other compensatory mechanisms still kick in. And so, you know, we still struggle sometimes even they might lose 50 pounds, which sounds wonderful, but not enough to get the surgery. And then, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of stuck. So we have to, we have to get creative beyond just that. Are you familiar with Dr. Barbara Rolls and her work on energy density? Uh, I know of energy density. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure who she is. Yeah, well, she, she's at Penn State and she like kind of is the, the mother of calorie density, but that's sort of what you're talking about, about being able to eat more food, eat more, weigh less concept. Uh, yes, I mean, that, that, that's certainly part of it. Um, a lot of our patients come to us, particularly patients uh, older, meaning like, you know, 40s and older, 50s and older. A lot of the dogma coming to us is, you know, my problems are portions, not what I'm eating. And I, I often turn that around. I said, if you eat the right stuff, I don't care how much you eat. You know, yeah, maybe I don't want you overdoing the nuts. And, and while you're losing weight and still insulin resistant and not exercising a lot, I don't want you eating a ton of grains, but, but that doesn't mean you can't have them. Absolutely. So here's a question from Devon. Can you please ask the doctor if having a if there is a psychological delay in accepting dramatic weight loss? I still go to big size clothes after two years. When does the head catch up with the body? That's person to person. And it's interesting. I think a lot of people kind of have a, a preset sense of self that way predates when they come to see me. So I have people who have put on 50, 60 pounds and they still think of themselves as pretty lean. I mean, they know they're not statistically and they know they're not in the mirror, but their mindset is still one of someone lean and they just got to take the weight off and get back to the way they were. And I have other patients who lose a hundred pounds and they're convinced that they're still morbidly obese. Um, uh, I don't know exactly when that happens, but um, just do stuff, let the brain catch up. So, you know, when, when people lost a lot of weight and they're more active and they have new clothes and right, all these things that that fit them and they can use their body more than, than I think that their brain might catch up a little bit. Um, but it's more complicated than, than just that. I mean, there's a, the psychological component as well. 
Right. You know, whether somebody chooses to eat only plants or maybe have animal products, would you agree that it's these processed foods and these ultra processed foods that really have greatly increased uh, the obesity epidemic? Because I mean, it just seems that people have gotten so much heavier so quickly in these past, you know, I don't know, 40, 50 years. Right. There were very few vegan, uh, self-identified vegans in America 50 years ago but the obesity rates were dramatically different, right? So, so yes, uh, um, it's other stuff that's going on and it's, it's, it's a lot of lifestyle stuff, but uh, just the amount of food being consumed almost 500 calories more from the early 1970s uh, to about 10 years ago. I saw a study which showed over 500 calories per day more and that's often in refined food. So it's added fats, refined grains and sugar for the most part. So that, that give you the sense of what's going on. Um, you know, there's other cultural issues besides refined foods, but you know, when you're going out to eat in a restaurant, it's almost always refined anyway. So, you know, whether the portion sizes are larger, I mean, the fact is the refined foods allow you to eat stuff that's larger, even if it's only slightly refined. Yeah, absolutely. Susan says, what do you think is the most powerful motivator for people to lose weight? Oh, that's always, it's always personal. Um, so, um, it's, I don't think you can be told what your reason should be. Uh, we spend a lot of our time focusing on health, right? You know, we, we see people with obesity. We don't see, you know, the worried well who doesn't like what they look like. And so for us, we, we, we don't ignore health ever, ever. So we talk a lot about that. Um, but for a lot of people it ends up being aesthetics, but I don't think that that's the majority of case. I think most of the time it's, it's a combination of health and then a feeling of being able to do whatever they want to do. Those two things are, are probably, probably uh, I hear the most often. How do you feel about the term food addiction? Cause I interview a lot of doctors and some like completely dismiss it and poo poo it and others say, yeah, that it's, it's real. It might not be the so, greatest name. Right, it, I guess it's depending on how you deflect so much as it's semantics, but yeah, I think, I think this whole entire process is addictive. Right, so a lot of the same parts of the brain are used, uh, are, are affected as if you drink alcohol, smoke cigarettes, get in fights, gamble, right? I mean, we have some of those same receptors are, are involved. Uh, number two, we know for sure that a lot of these refined foods are very addictive and certain combinations of sugar, fat, and salt. And if you, if things dissolve on your tongue symmetrically, it seems to be more, more, uh, and if there's little surprises in your food, more addictive. And, and the food industry knows this and there's scientists that work on it. You, know, you can get millions of dollars for coming up with a new soda flavor, right? Why? Because you make it more addictive. Um, so I think, I think, yeah, um, without giving it a, you know, a DSM five diagnosis out of a textbook, um, if we didn't have addictive behavior around food, we, we probably would not have this problem. So right now it's holidays. Are you getting new patients or is it, are you going to just wait until January 2nd and get a huge influx? No, it, it's, we, we have a wait list. So it's just, everyone's just collecting new patients all the time. Wow. Yeah. Why do you think it is so many people wait until January 2nd to try to lose weight? Well, I, probably procrastination, right? If, if I hear, well, I'll take care of it after the holidays. I'm, I'm not, I'm not thinking this person's really that serious already. But the thing that I will say is that I, I'm not great at predicting when someone is ready. So people have, have come to me that have maintained 150, 200 pound weight loss that had tried it 10, 15 times before they met me. It's not that I'm some sort of genius. I think it helps that they were ready when they came. Um, 
And, and, you know, it's not like I, I, I called them up and said, saw them on the street and said, look, you could lose under 50 pounds, come and see me. They were ready at that time. Nice. What role do you think exercise plays in the, in the obesity epidemic? Oh, it's big on multiple fronts. So one, we know that if you're, um, if you're inactive, it changes your gut microbes, it changes a, a bunch of other hormones, changes your insulin sensitivity, right? And all those things are going to, are going to make a difference. Number two, you know, you're, burning less calories. Number three, you hold on to less muscle if you're inactive. So then you're, you're also uh, have a slower metabolism from that. Um, and we also know that in terms of weight maintenance, uh, people that keep weight off, uh, this is from the National Weight Control Registry, but the people that keep weight off on average are active about an hour per day. Um, and generally speaking, the more the merrier. I, that's, we can get into some nuance of people doing tons. I have a few patients that I've slowed down on the exercise front, um, but they were doing, you know, three hours a day um, at, at an old enough age that I needed them to, to at least back off on some of that intensity, I thought, just, just to keep their immune system in check. Thank you for mentioning the National Weight Control Registry. I'm in it. And I right. recently, yeah, I recently interviewed James Hill, the, the who co-founded it. And he said the same thing about exercise that is, as far as losing weight, everything works. Anytime you create a calorie deficit, but for the maintainers, that was one of the, that was probably the biggest piece. One hour every day. But that's only if you're looking at weight at weight. But if you're looking at body composition, you actually have shown that if you if you work out, you maintain more lean mass when you're losing weight. And losing lean mass when you're losing weight is part of the problem. So we try to make sure that our, our patients lose as much fat as possible and not lean mass. Um, because you don't want to slow down the metabolism and make you feel weaker by the end. So Great. I have time for probably about one more question, then I, I got to run. Uh, okay. We're trying to do right. virtual Thanksgiving. I understand. Okay, well, there's two. Gosh, I'm going to have to choose, but I'll, I'll do them in order they were asked. I'll do two. I'll do two. That's okay, fine. well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And for, thank you for doing this on the holiday. I know how busy you are. Kathleen said, does one need to continue whatever it is they did to lose the fat to keep the fat off? Well, so the answer is... Yes-ish, right? So, so you don't have to necessarily do whatever it is that you did, but you have to do something. You can't go back to the old way, right? So you're probably gonna have to take in fewer calories and do much more exercise and have a bunch of systems of checks and balances. Now, if you lose weight by a drinking shakes, right? And, and going to a sauna every day, fine. That's what you did. I don't recommend that for, for lifetime. You can then convert that into, you know, a, a whole foods, relatively lower calorie diet. Uh, diet with, with lots of exercise, it would probably work for maintenance. So it doesn't have to exactly be the same. What we try to do is have people eat in an ideal world, they eat whole food, plant-based, get lots of exercise, meditate, you know, get enough sleep. And then that's just the lifestyle that they cruise into. That's, that's the ideal. Great. And um, Maya says, what does Dr. Kane give his patients to eat? Um, well, as we've talked about, whole foods is, is what we're trying going for. So as much unrefined stuff as possible. Um, I try to, in general, we have people stick to either two or three meals per day and not snack frequently. Um, that's actually been shown to disrupt circadian rhythm and people tend to overeat. Um, and we move towards making sure that, it, that we have very low energy density. So uh, lots of produce um, and then, and then in, as I said, in an ideal world or for people with high met cardiometabolic or cancer risk or cancer, uh, we, we try to, you know, strenuously recommend whole food plant-based. Um, you know, I mentioned it comes up to, 
it becomes obvious when I'm discussing how the body works to patients that it makes the most sense. Um, but not everyone wants to go there. So, so we try to work as, as best we can, but at no point do we recommend, okay, have this much refined foods or only this much refined food. We try to get rid of that. That makes sense. Now, do you do any telemedicine or could, could people see you if they wanted to? Um, so the answer is yes, now we do, but the laws state that we can only see people still have to be in New York. And I mean, in theory, if, if we get a glut of people from a certain state, I could talk to my institution about my getting a license in that state and we could, we could work on that. But uh, right now, um, even though half to two thirds of my practice is, is telemedicine because, because of COVID, um, the law state that the person has to be, you know, has to be in New York, or at least the, the patient should have, has to have started in a state in which I have a license. Makes sense. Well, thank you so thank you thank you so much for taking the time to come on on Thanksgiving and for being uh, being plant based and and really educating your patients on how important that is for health and and for weight loss and I I can't wait till your summit interview comes out it was spectacular and happy thanks for all the work you do yeah right happy Thanksgiving Dr Kane and happy Thanksgiving to everyone please come back tomorrow at nine a.m. when I have a special show I'll be interviewing Doug Hay from the No Meat Athlete.